This morning's scripture is taken from the Gospel according to John in the 14th chapter, verses 1 through 14. It is Jesus who is speaking. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. The Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. Last week, our revised common lectionary gave us a story that took place just after the Pentecost. And then this week, just a little bit later, We find ourselves back in time on the evening before Good Friday. It seems right now that the lectionary is taking us on a whirlwind tour through Eastertide, back and forth, perhaps in order to give us a new point of view on this time that we are currently living, trying to give us a clearer image and perhaps even an answer to the question that we asked nearly a month ago, what now? What are we expected to do with the resurrection and the knowledge it brings with this new world that is not what we had thought and hoped that it would be? The communion liturgy that we heard last week talks about what happened on the night before the crucifixion. But in between the end of that supper and the moment when they all got up from the table, John's gospel, and only John's gospel, tells us that Jesus spoke at length to his disciples because he loved them enough to want to reassure them, to want to prepare them, to want to give them hope. This is not the end, he tells them. This is not the end. You know what to do and how to find me. But what words can you use to explain to humans the way into a world that is unlike the one they know? How do you reassure a bunch of anxious people that the unknown isn't as scary 
as they fear that it might be. The disciples, hearing Jesus' words, protest, probably wondering to themselves which day it was that they missed that particular lesson, when it was that Jesus had given them the roadmap, the explicit instructions that would bring about the longed-for promises. And Jesus, whom I imagine heaved a really deep sigh, tells them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I want to take a little pause for a second here, throw in a bit of a parenthesis in the middle of the sermon, because Jesus' response right there has become a pretty loaded phrase, and it carries a lot of baggage. A lot of harm has been done by folks who yell, Jesus is the way, and especially the ones who yell, Jesus is the only way to be saved. Those are the folks who have created an exclusionary, weaponized Christianity, which has been used to justify colonialism and other sins for centuries. These are the folks who created a Christianity that is more concerned with its own power and its own dominance as measured by church membership than with justice or mercy or grace. By taking this one phrase out of context, Christians have declared that Muslims, atheists, indigenous people, and perhaps especially Jews cannot be saved, cannot know God's grace, are not loved, and perhaps even are not worthy of love because they have not, and I quote with big air quotes here, accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But we need to remember always that this is an interpretation that the church, the institutional church, has created, and created for its own sake. Not for the sake of the gospel, and we need to be clear about that, because Jesus put less stock in our ability to use formulas of faith than he did in our desire to live that faith in ways that help the least of these, the marginalized and despised members of society, in ways that turn hearts from anxiety to compassion, from self to community, in ways that show forth the abundant and abiding grace of a God who loves the whole world and doesn't deal in litmus tests. So what was it then that Thomas and Philip, standing in for all of us as disciples, weren't quite grasping? Did they miss the impact of Jesus' I am statement, his use of the name of God, the name that God gave God's own flaming self when Moses asked? The implication that it is not the person of Jesus who is the way, but the God dwelling in human flesh, that is the way and the truth and the life. I mean, this isn't the first time that Jesus used that I am formulation in this gospel. So I wonder if it's actually that, or perhaps it's much more a matter of what the, not so much a matter of what the disciples didn't grasp as it is about things that weren't going quite the way that they'd hoped quite the way that they, as normal human beings, had come to expect. It's usually Advent and not Eastertide when we talk about the appearance of a Messiah in a way that flies in the face of all of our expectations, because surely the Anointed One of God is supposed to come with shining armor and flaming sword and armies of avenging angels. 
that even when the angels come with songs of praise rather than battle cries, announcing the birth of a child rather than the arrival of a king, we still find ourselves expecting something more. We still find ourselves longing for the child to grow up into the person that we still sort of hope will come along. Who can blame us, really? I mean, isn't that the way all our stories go? Joseph becomes regent of Egypt. Moses leads the people out of slavery. Rahab ensured the Israelite victory at Jericho. David beat Goliath. Esther uncovered a devious plot and stopped a genocide. Even outside the Bible, in all of our fairy tales, don't we wait for Prince Charming, or at least for the huntsman to come kill the big bad wolf? In our movies, in our television, doesn't there always seem to be a hero there to save the day? Doesn't there always seem to be one decisive moment, one crucial act of strength or sacrifice that changes everything? There's a song by Stephen Sondheim, and I think Philip and Thomas would have liked it in its illustration of the desperate desire for a savior as we understand the term. It's from the musical Anyone Can Whistle, although the song was cut. And it goes, There are heroes in the world. Princes are heroes in the world. And one of them will save us. Wait and see. But not with trumpets or lightning flashing or shining armor. He may be daring, he may be dashing, or maybe he's a farmer. We can wait, what's another day? He has lots of hills to climb, and a hero doesn't come till the nick of time. This moment, from the evening before the end, puts in the mouths of Thomas and Philip the longing that has remained with humanity from the very beginning. The longing for a hero to make it all better, to bring everything into focus, to pave the way before us and open to us the gates of glory. It's the question that has been tugging at all of us throughout this pandemic the one that has us latching on to unproven explanations, even conspiracy theories, or on to untested treatments, or on to the false hope that we can know who is truly vulnerable, which is just another way of suggesting that we have some control. It all speaks to our human desire for a silver bullet, for a way out, for a once-off heroic or sacrificial act that will flip the switch that gets life back to normal. Thomas said, We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Philip said, Show us. And we wait, right alongside those two, for the list of instructions, for the exact recipe, for the signs that point us toward the saving hero. We wait with them to be told what one thing we must accomplish to stop the killing of unarmed black men and trans women, to end poverty and homelessness to solve the opioid crisis, to cure the coronavirus and get back to life. 
We sit in the silence that follows their anxious words, having followed Jesus, having heard the promises of the kingdom, having hoped that it might yet come in our lifetimes. And Jesus says to us all, I am the way and the truth and the life. God is in human flesh. What more do you need? Keep on doing the work. For God remains, abides, stays, even when flesh does not. You do know the way. Love one another. What more instruction do you need? Love is the way. Love is our truth. Love will give us life. What other God has there ever been? This is the way you know, for this is the love that has always surrounded you. This is the grace in which you, you, in which you have dwelt from before the beginning. And there won't be trumpets. But you are all heroes, in every moment, living in ways that matter, living in ways that decide either for the kingdom or for the world, either for justice or for domination, either for community or for self either for human life or for profit. There won't be shining armor, for this is not a battle we fight once, but rather a choice we make daily, to wear masks for the sake of people we may never know, to listen and learn and stand up against the ways that racism, sexism, bias exist in our own hearts and in the everyday world that we inhabit, to see and push back against the ways we have been taught to worship money and productivity, until we let houses sit empty and discard tons of food because it is only valuable to us as a means of gaining cash. There won't be trumpets. Because we aren't waiting for the hero who comes in the nick of time. Why should we wait for the I am who remains with us, who remains within us, who is the truth we hold close, who is our way of life? To paraphrase Pogo, we have met the hero and they are us. Because the God who came, not with flashes of fire, but with infant cries, has shown us God's own self, has shown us the way to where God dwells. There won't be trumpets, but there will be masks and physical distancing. There will be truths about America's history with race. There will be death, and there will be resurrection. There won't be trumpets, but there will be a way that we will know, because generations before us have walked it, following in the footsteps of Jesus, finding their way to God's loving truth, finding their way to life. There will be a way that we know for the God of all the generations. The God who loves the world without exception or exclusion abides with us, dwells with us, remains with us, and guides us on the way to compassion and grace and love. Who needs trumpets when we have that? Alleluia. Amen.